Thank you, everybody. It truly has been a privilege of mine to worship alongside you for these past six months, and I'm really looking forward to continuing to do that. Our passage today is going to come from Psalm 27, if you want to start flipping there. Now, we're going to be talking about fear and anxiety, where those fit, and likewise, where they do not fit in the Christian life. And if you're wondering, I do recognize the irony that my first sermon's about fear and anxiety. <laughs> that, that did not slip past me. Anxiety is one of those interesting feelings, isn't it? It's a very... Uh, it's a very heightened sense of fear. It, it grips us. It kind of takes over us. Uh, sometimes it's hard to sleep when we're feeling anxious about something. Sometimes it's hard to focus on work when we're feeling anxious. And sometimes those anxious feelings well up even more and you experience an anxiety attack or otherwise known as a panic attack. Very very acute sense of anxiety for a given amount of time. And for some people, these feelings of anxiety, uh, frequent anxiety attacks actually happen quite regularly, and we would categorize that as an anxiety disorder. And there's a lot more people than I think we realize who have anxiety disorders. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 18% of Americans per year suffer an anxiety disorder. That's about 40 million Americans. Anxiety disorders affect one in eight children. And 42 billion, that's with a B, 42 billion dollars of the national mental health budget go to treating anxiety disorders. So I think it's safe to say that... We tend to be anxious people, don't we? And even if it's not chronic like somebody with an anxiety disorder, it's really easy to feel anxious about the problems in our lives. It's very easy to turn on the news, whether that's on your TV or your laptop, your tablet, your cell phone, and see all the terrible things that are happening in the world, whether that's globally or locally. And it's very easy to feel anxious about that, isn't it? I know it does for me. And if you're sitting here today and this doesn't resonate with you at all, you are just not an anxious person, don't know what I'm talking about, then congratulations. (laughs) You're probably a superhero, something like that. So with that said, um, we are going to jump into Psalm 27 and see how the psalmist deals with what would be an anxiety-provoking situation. So follow along with me and I'm going to lead us in reading. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me, 
At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Now, if you look under the big 27, denoting that this is the 27th chapter of Psalm, you'll see the phrase of David, meaning that David did, in fact, write this psalm. And as Pastor Dean explained to us last week, every psalm comes with a context. And the context in which David wrote this psalm doesn't necessarily match the tone of the psalm itself. The context in which David wrote this psalm was a little more dire. Specifically, uh, biblical scholars uh, assume that David wrote this psalm from what was described in his life in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. You do not need to flip there because I'm going to briefly explain what went on in those two chapters. Basically, at this time in David's life, he was fleeing from Saul. Saul was the king of Israel at this time, but David had been anointed the new king of Israel. Saul didn't like that very much, so he wanted David killed, and therefore David is fleeing from Saul, fleeing from the king of his own nation, fleeing from the armies of his own nation that he is a citizen of. Not only that, but those who helped David along the way from fleeing Saul were often killed. And in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, there's a very specific account of an entire city, all its citizens, being wiped out regardless of gender or age because David was helped in that city. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 27, that's not the context I was expecting because that's a very cheerful psalm despite being written in a very trying time in David's life. The Psalms can be categorized into different genres. They're often tried to be categorized into different genres, whether that's a psalm of praise, a psalm of lament, psalm of mourning, etc., etc. This is clearly not a psalm of lament or mourning. David isn't sitting there saying, Oh, woe is me that all this is happening to me, or God, where are you? Despite all the things going on in David's life at this point in time, this is a psalm of confidence, a psalm of confidence, neatly encapsulated in the very first verse when David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Therefore, as we continue to unwrap this passage, I want you to keep in mind, one, the context in which this is written compared 
to it being a psalm of confidence nonetheless. So Psalm 27 can be split into three different sections, each section based on who David is addressing. The first section, he is making an open-ended proclamation, no one person in mind. Second section, he is addressing God personally, more of a prayer-like manner. And the third section, he is addressing the readers, that is you, that is me, that is anybody else who has ever read this psalm. So the first section, verses 1 through 6, David is making an open-ended proclamation about his confidence in God. We had just read the first verse together that encapsulates this theme. And you might be asking yourself, how is David able to stay this confident? How is he able to write these words despite being chased by his own king and the armies of his own nation? And David actually kind of sneaks in various ways that he is able to remain confident in this situation. The first of which come in verses 2 and 3. And it's a very, very slight nuance between these two verses that reveal how David is able to remain confident. So track with me just for one moment. When verse 2 of Psalm 27 is directly translated from its original Hebrew. The entire Old Testament was written in Hebrew. When it's directly translated from its original Hebrew, it should actually be read in the past tense. The verbiage should be past tense. Therefore, verse 2 should read, The wicked advanced against me to devour me. It is my enemies and my foes who stumbled and fell. However, verse 3, when directly translated from Hebrew, remains in the present tense. Therefore, these two verses read back to back would read, The wicked advanced against me to devour me. It is my enemies and my foes who stumbled and fell. Though an army besiege me, present tense, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident." I'm sure you all didn't come to church today expecting a grammar lesson, nor did you want one. Uh, But this is a very important aspect of this psalm, because basically what David is doing is he is saying, when enemies came upon me in the past, when my enemies rose up against me in the past, God provided for me there. Therefore, when enemies rise up against me now, why should I expect any different? You see, David's using hindsight, hindsight to his advantage. I'm sure we are all familiar with hindsight. Hindsight's that thing when we're feeling very sick to our stomachs, we're very nauseous, just feeling awful. It says to us, man, probably shouldn't have eaten that sushi that was left on the counter all those days. Probably shouldn't have done that. And hopefully we learn from our hindsight. Hopefully we don't repeat those actions and eat old sushi again. Some of you I'm a little worried about, but... It's beside the point. Instead of using hindsight to correct an issue, David uses hindsight to look how God provided for him in the past. And he learns from that. He learns from all the times that God provided for him in the past and finds comfort and expectation in the present. It's not a guarantee, but nevertheless, it's comforting. 
From there, David moves into the second section of Psalm 27, verses 7 through 12, in which he moves into a time of prayerfully addressing God. He's directly addressing God in verses 7 through 12. And as he, do, and as he does so, he asks God for many things. He asks God for many things. And there's a theme. A, there's a theme and a pattern for, by which he asks God for these things. And I want you to pay attention for that theme. David asks God that he hear my voice, answer me, do not hide your face from me, do not reject me or forsake me, teach me your way, do not turn me over to my foes. Are you starting to pick up on the pattern? If you haven't, the pattern actually starts in the first section in verses 4 through 6 when David said he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. There's a common theme here. And this theme actually denotes another way that David finds confidence. And it's this. David is simply seeking closeness to God. He is simply seeking closeness to God when he asks him to hear him, answer him, do not hide your face from him. He wants to seek him in his house, in his temple, David is simply wanting to be closer to God. Very simple. I want you at this time to imagine a time in your life. Remember a time in your life when you were either very sad, very anxious, angry, just some sort of bad emotion. Remember how that feels. Now I want you now to imagine somebody coming up beside you. This could have actually happened in your case or not, but imagine somebody coming up beside you, sitting next to you, asking you how you're doing, what's wrong. They're very empathetic, and they're just there with you, not necessarily trying to solve your problems, but just being with you. It's very comforting just to have somebody there when we're not doing well, just to have somebody there. And that's what David recognizes when he's seeking closeness to God. He realizes that God is always near to him, but not only that, that God loves him, cares for him, and knows everything about him, knows what he's going through, knows what he's feeling. And therefore, seeking closeness to God just provides comfort, just to have somebody there. And finally, he moves into the third section of Psalm 27 in which he states, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the third way that David is able to remain confident that God will provide for him in a trying time. When he says, He is confident that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He has faith for his future. That in his future, he will be with God in the land of the living. Now, David was before the time of Christ. He was before Christ. 
So therefore, as Christians, we have a special promise for our futures, don't we? We have a special promise that we will spend an eternity with God in fellowship with him and other believers. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can happen in this life, on this earth as it is now, that can take that away from us. Absolutely, no matter how bad it gets here, how, no matter how bad it got for David, he has that in his future. So therefore, David looks into his past to see how God provided for him. He recognizes that God is continually with him, and he has hope for his future. So what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Because David puts down a pretty good argument as to why we shouldn't be afraid. Does that mean, as Christians, we're not allowed to feel afraid? Is it not okay to be afraid, given the argument David made? Of course not. Of course not. Fear is a very natural emotion. Perfectly natural emotion. Emotion. In fact, it's a very useful emotion. It alerts our bodies that something is wrong and we should probably do something about it. I remember when I had first moved down here into the Southern California area, South Bay. I was driving on the 405 North. I was sitting in some traffic. By the way, the traffic you guys have down here is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Uh, in Northern California, traffic for us is we like get slowed to 50 miles an hour on the freeway for like a minute or two, and it absolutely ruins our day. So, good for you guys. <laughs> Anyways, I was sitting in some traffic on the 405, and it started to clear up. It started to clear up, and we started traveling at a quicker pace when all of a sudden, big red Mustang zooms past my left side, cuts me off. It wasn't a normal getting cut off. This guy came within inches of clipping the front of my car and subsequently spinning me out. And at this point, I'm white-knuckling my steering wheel. The rest of the drive home, I'm very on edge, making sure nothing else is going to happen. And I hope you guys would not fault me for in that situation being a little on edge. I hope not. Basically, my body was telling me, hey, we almost got hit. Let's be careful for the rest of this drive. But there's a difference. There's a difference between being afraid and being anxious. And it kind of goes like this. If I would have gone home after that drive, got out of my car, went to my apartment, I was still freaked out. Rest of the night, I was still freaked out. Went to bed, freaked out. Woke up, freaked out. And maybe I was too scared to get back in my car. That's anxiety. That is fear taking control of your life. You see, fear is a very normal part of everyday life, but it should never run everyday life. And that's anxiety. And what happens with anxiety is it consumes us. It's a fear that consumes us, utterly fills us up to the brim where we cannot focus on anything other than what is making us fearful or nervous. And in essence, we subconsciously push God out of the picture. We're not intently doing it. It's not something we want to do, 
But nevertheless, it happens, does it not? And David, by giving us these three things, these three techniques, is trying his best to combat anxiety. And it seems like he's pretty successful in doing so. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good. I, I understand the argument. It makes sense to me. However, I still have anxiety. It's hard. You may be thinking to yourself, I want, I want to do that, but it's really hard for me. I still have things in my life that I'm anxious about. And trust me, I know. I really do. Anxiety is not one of those things that is a quick fix. It usually takes time. I would know. I actually have dealt with an anxiety disorder for most of my life. I know what it's like to be constantly fearful over seemingly meaningless things. And they are meaningless. For stuff that you guys think is a no-brainer, easy, for Somebody with an anxiety disorder can become incredibly difficult and crippling. I remember uh, back in the fourth grade being taken to the emergency room because I was having such a severe anxiety attack that my parents thought I was having a heart attack. It's a true story. Fun fact, or I guess not so fun fact. Um, and severe enough anxiety attacks simulate heart attacks. They aren't heart attacks, but they have the same symptoms. And when I was younger, my anxiety was manageable. You know, kids don't really have that much responsibility. There's not much to get worked up about. It was there, but I can control it. As I start to get older, the anxiety gets worse with the responsibilities that gets placed on me. And I remember back in my junior and early senior year of college, my anxiety really just coming to a head. And it was a time in my life when, man, I really felt like I was getting pounded down by real, real anxiety-provoking things. An example would be, uh, I was driving my friend's car in Seattle, and I got into a crash. It was my fault, um, Completely my fault, and there happened to be a very pregnant lady driving the other car. She was completely fine. Nobody was injured. It was act, ended up being a very minor crash. Nonetheless, very traumatizing, especially when it's your first accident. I also know what it's like to be locked down on my college campus as there's an active shooter. And I know what it's like to scroll through the news feed as you're locked down, and various reporters are saying that there are three or four gunmen at large on campus. There wasn't. There was only one guy, and he was taken down pretty quickly. Nevertheless, pretty freaky. So it was events like these and a few more at this point in time in my life when the anxiety got bad. And I mean real bad. I was spiraling pretty bad, bouncing back and forth between constant anxiety attack, constant depression. Constant anxiety attack, constant depression. Back and forth, back and forth. Until ultimately I hit a rock bottom. Really did. And by the grace of God, I was faced with a decision. 
Either I could continue spiraling or I could turn to God and give him my fears, my worries, my everything. I had had a good relationship with God at this point in time in my life. Don't get me wrong. But this was an extra every day being with God throughout every day. I tried to incorporate God into my everyday life. Not only that, I started going to therapy for my anxiety. And one of the practices they had me do was to remember past anxiety attacks, past things that I got really anxious about, and to realize that those eventually got resolved. And if they didn't get resolved in the way that I wanted, I'm still here today. Still very healthy, have a good life. And not only that, and this is a very real thought that I had all the time, whenever I would have a really bad anxiety attack, I would think to myself, well, if anything, I I have heaven. And it's very true. And it was incredibly comforting. That was one of the thought one of the few thoughts that kept me going during my anxiety attacks. And you know what? These three things coupled together, along with loving support from friends and family, they started to get better over time. Slowly but surely, it started to get better and better and better until you see me where I'm at now. I'm not free of anxiety, mind you. I don't know if I ever will be. It's very much a part of me. I'm okay with that. But I haven't felt the real effects of anxiety in probably a good seven or eight months. And I owe it to what David's talking about right here. I'm not saying these things to puff myself up and like, I got through these hard times and therefore you can too. I'm saying them because what David is talking about is real. And it works. And I don't want to make it sound like it's an easy three-step plan to eliminate anxiety forever. It's not a QVC commercial. However, I can speak from a place and time in my own life when these things were incredibly helpful. And so if you are somebody here today who suffers with chronic anxiety like I do, remember these things. Remember to remember God working in your past. Remember that he is continually with you at all times and he loves you and that he promised a wonderful future for you. Remember these things. And if you're somebody who's not a very anxious person, please still do these things because there are going to be anxiety-provoking times in your life. There will be. It's a guarantee of life. That's just the way it goes. And you can better prepare yourself for those anxiety-provoking times by doing these things now and not just putting them off until anxiety does happen. And as you remember, as you remember what God has done for you in your past, I hope you would not forget Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane with droplets of blood on his face because he was so scared of his impending torture, ridicule, death, taking on the sins of the world. Yet he did not allow his fear to take him over and he was able to accomplish what he was meant to accomplish on the cross. 
And because Christ took on the ultimate anxiety and conquered it, we learn from David that there is no real reason for us to be anxious anymore. It's very beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, it is with humble hearts that we come before you today knowing that we are anxious people, knowing that we do not give you the credit you are due sometimes. And God, I pray you would forgive us in this, but make us stronger. Help us to remember all the things you do for us. Remember that you are continually near us and remember the promise for our future. And in that, we can build a further faith and trust in you, Lord. And even in those times when we are afraid that we, like David, we can still acknowledge you and place our faith and trust in you, Lord. Thank you that you are continually with us. And as we go about our individual lives with our individual problems, we thank you that you are in the midst of them, that you care about us, and that we can always turn to you, Lord. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.